0: Good Sunday morning, this is the Arts Section. I'm your host, Gary Zydek. Welcome to WDCB's Arts & Culture magazine. Every week we spotlight creative people, events, and ideas in the Chicago area arts community, while also fostering broader discussions on music, film, theater, and other creative endeavors. Thanks for making some time for arts and culture this morning. On today's program, I'll take you with on my tour of the Fine Arts Building. The Chicago landmark is celebrating its 125th anniversary all year. The dueling critics Carrie Reed and Jonathan Abarbanel will join me to discuss a revival of the classic musical Damn Yankees. Later in the show, I'll catch up with renowned composer Jesse Montgomery, who's preparing for the CSO's final Music Now concert of the season. And I'll check in with nationally known music critic, Khalifa Sané to talk about music genres. All that's coming up. Anyone entering the Fine Arts Building in Chicago is greeted with a phrase above either of the entrances. It reads, all passes, art alone endures. True in a general sense, great art stays with us, always but also prophetic. In terms of the structure at 410 South Michigan Avenue, the building has served as a hub of creative activity since 1898. That art alone message, which was inspired by a 19th century French poem, has welcomed visitors to the Fine Arts Building for a century and a quarter. The Fine Arts Building is celebrating its milestone 125th anniversary this year with some special offerings, including two new exhibits, a self-guided tour, and some additional programming. I recently visited the Chicago landmark on a weekday afternoon to ride the manually operated elevators, walk through the storied hallways, and check out the new exhibits. I caught up with the Fine Arts Building's Managing Artistic Director, Jacob Harvey, to learn more about the history of 410 South Michigan Avenue, While the Fine Arts Building was born in 1898, the structure itself opened 13 years earlier as something else. So originally,
1: this building was the Studebaker carriage showroom and repository. They had offices on the upper floors and in the windows on Michigan Avenue, they had carriages, storefront windows, and what is now the Studebaker Theater was a showroom, was a carriage showroom. Once the Studebakers outgrew, that space, the same architect who built that the building for them came back, Salon Beeman, and refashioned this building as the fine arts building. And that was in 1898, so we're 125 years later.
0: The arts building concept, did that come from
1: new owners? No, the Studebakers still owned it at the time, which was really interesting. And uh, eventually, a coalition of folks in the Fine Arts Building sort of took over some management and ownership. And the building has changed owners several times, you know, over the last century and a quarter. But it's always remained the Fine Arts Building and it's always been a place for artists and this kind of incredible intersection of the fine and performing arts
0: after its reopening as the fine arts building word began to spread around chicago about this new haven for the arts
1: so the original sort of manager of the building and artist curator charles curtis he was very intentional about building this community and shaping this community and you know what is important to the fine arts building and understanding that and sort of building not only Um, artistic community, but collaboration and and there was a lot of collaboration among different tenants of the building, especially in the early years. And there were a lot of connections to other arts organizations too. So for example, there were a lot of tenants in the building that were also professors at the School of the Art Institute right down the street.
0: Over the years, some pretty well-known tenants have called the fine arts building home. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the first things
1: that we did really in digging into and investing into the history of the building, in order for us to start writing new chapters of a history book, we need to know what came before us. And so one of the first things that we did was go into different archives at different museums and, and different universities to understand who was here and what was the ecosystem of artists that were here. And so, throughout the building, there are plaques now in front of studios that housed prominent tenants of the historical artists of the building, as well as honoring and commemorating tenants of the building that have been here for 20 years, 30 years, 40 years. You know, there are organizations that have been in this building for 50, 60 years. And so, celebrating all of that, you know, the past and the present, with keeping our eyes ahead to the future.
0: So just uh, to highlight a couple, Frank Lloyd Wright stands out right away.
1: Yeah, well, what's interesting about Frank Lloyd Wright is he gets a lot
0: of mentions at the building,
1: but what's interesting is he was actually only a tenant of the building for two months and that two-month period, we believe, is when he was designing two really important spaces that are also commemorated in the building, which is the Thurber Art Galleries and the Brown Bookstore. Right? So those those two spaces were designed by Frank Lloyd Wright, and so he was here at the time. But I mean, you're right, there is no shortage of historic tenants, you know. Um, there is uh, William Denslow, who was the illustrator of The Wonderful Wizard of Oz. And he actually was first connected to L. Frank Baum here in this building. Um, on the 10th floor of the Fine Arts Building is where the Caxton Club was, and that's where they met and then started a collaboration. That way, you know, there's also folks in the literary world like Margaret Anderson, who was the publisher of the Little Review, and they were the first American publisher to publish James Joyce's Ulysses, and they did it in in sort of sections. Um, so there's there's no shortage of of stories, and the more and more we we dig, the more and more we find um, that this has always been sort of this magnetic epicenter for folks, for artists, literary, musical, and dance alike. You know, everybody sort of finds home here and finds this as sort of like a buzzing and creative atmosphere. You know, I have read things about the history of the building, and one of the things that always is mentioned that is still true today is the music in the hallway. You know, you can always hear voice lessons, musicians practicing. The Chicago Youth Symphony Orchestra is here. So on the weekends, you hear incredible young musicians playing throughout the building. That's still true, you know, and has always been sort of a wonderful little quirk and tidbit of the building is that, you know, you just walk through and the halls are literally, you know, vibrating with music.
0: There's also a history of civic engagement and activism intertwined within the building's arts legacy.
1: Anybody who's in the arts or is an artist themselves understands, you know, viscerally that art and social justice or art and social change are deeply intertwined with each other. So even in the inception of the building as early as the 1910s, not only was the Fine Arts Building a home for artists and creatives and collaborators, but it was also a place where social justice was occurring. And there were many women's groups that had homes and meeting spaces here including the illinois equal suffrage association and the work that they were doing here in this building particularly in the 1910s leads directly to illinois being the first state to ratify the 19th amendment giving women the right to vote and that is so it's it's just so magnificent to me because we as artists talk about that all the time social change or you know art being used as a something to incite debate or instill empathy and that legacy it traces back to the inception of the building.
0: If you're just tuning in I'm Gary Zeitik this is the art section. I'm visiting the historic Fine Arts Building in downtown Chicago as it celebrates its 125th anniversary. I'm talking with the building's Managing Artistic Director, Jacob Harvey. I remember the first time I came to the Fine Arts Building. I was in college. One of my high school friends was going to the school at the Art Institute. I came to visit them, and he took me to the Artist Cafe, which was on the ground level of the building, and has, of course, since closed. I remember walking around the first floor and up the stairs to the second floor and just being amazed at all these studios and shops that I had no idea existed. And then, of course, over the years, especially doing what I do now, I've become more familiar with the building. And it's really one of my favorite places to recommend for out-of-towners or tourists to visit.
1: Similar to you, you know, I was first introduced to the building by a friend of mine who was a musician. And at the time, I was living in New York City and thinking about moving to Chicago. And he said... I need to take you to the Fine Arts Building. That's the place, Mm -hmm. you know? And so he and another good friend of mine, who is now his wife, took me to the Fine Arts Building. And we also went to the Artist Cafe, and I looked in the Performers Music, the sheet music store that's been here since the 70s, and explored the hallways, and was just sort of captured by the magic of it all. Mm So it's a really special thing to be able to be here now and participating in it.
0: And on top of all that, a rare opportunity to, to ride in a manually operated elevator. That's right. That's right.
1: It's so funny. When I first started working here, people would say to me, that's the first question, are the elevators still manual? And then the second thing is you could you can charge tickets to those elevators. <laughs> it's such a great show. It's the last, I believe it's the last human operated elevators in the city of Chicago. It is an experience and each elevator operator is so unique unique and different and fun in their ways and um, they sure have no shortage of great stories to tell too Um, and uh, when I was talking to other folks about the building you know there's actually a plaque downstairs in the lobby that commemorates a long-standing elevator operator that's not with us anymore and he was famous. And infamous. You know, I talked to other artists (laughs) Uh who were like, oh, yeah, and I remember, you know, this old elevator operator and it was his way or no way or you took the stairs, you know. And it's just so funny because that is also a big part of the history and a big part of the story is those elevators, you know.
0: Harvey is hoping to use this year's milestone anniversary to draw some new attention to the building's past, present and future.
1: The real impetus and driver of celebrating the anniversary is really learning more and, and educating the public more about the history of the building. You know, that's why we put those plaques in place. That's why we've opened these two new exhibits. We really are envisioning the Fine Arts Building to be something like a living museum, and anybody can come to the building at any time during, you know, building hours, uh, Monday through Sunday and explore the building, and read about these historic tenants and these big artistic movements that generated from this building or were inspired from
0: this building. The two new exhibits Harvey mentioned are on the building's fifth floor. One, titled Art Alone Endures, looks back at the origins of the Fine Arts Building, highlighting some of the creatives who have called the structure home.
1: A really cool feature of the exhibit is this model. That we had designed by two great uh, theatrical designers uh, here in Chicago set designer Eleanor Kahn and lighting designer Eric Watkins. Um, and what it is is that it's a mixed media model representation of the building. So you get this really cool look at the building's facade in half inch scale with miniatures so that you can look through windows and see different examples of what was represented in the building at the time. We're looking at you know the first couple decades of the building. And then you turn the corner and floor by floor, you see different transparency images that are backlit. So you can see physical representations of the building itself coupled with historic photos of artists or art or things that were being created or made in the building at that time.
0: The other exhibit, Staging Ground, explores the fine arts building's deep connections to the local theater scene.
1: Yeah, so there's always been a rich history of theater in the Fine Arts Building, too. And uh, the live and performing arts have always had a place here as well. Um, And what I find most fascinating about it is through the history of the building, we have spaces like the Studebaker Theater, which for a big portion of its life from the teens through the 50s was really being used by the Schubert Organization, right? A big commercial um, nationwide theatrical conglomerate, right? But also, you have things here like the Little Theater, uh, which really was a small, intimate, you know, what we would now look at as like a storefront theater that was also very prominent and very successful coming out of the building. So you're looking at the, the commercial and the more scrappy or underground or DIY, you know, kind of living together in harmony.
0: Both exhibits are currently on display and open during the building's operating hours, which are 7 a.m. to 10 p.m. Monday through Friday, 7 a.m. to 9 p.m. on Saturdays, and 9 to 9 on Sundays. Harvey says there's no wrong way to explore the Fine Arts building, just come in.
1: My favorite thing is to start on the 10th floor and use the stairs and walk down. Um, You can also enjoy time in the elevators going from floor to floor and visiting the different studios with the different plaques on them, reading about who's here now and who was here before. And you can go to our website, fineartsbuilding.com, and there is actually a link to a self-guided tour that gives you a map floor by floor of where the plaques are and where the exhibits are. So that's always you know, a really great opportunity to get introduced to the Fine Arts Building.
0: That's Jacob Harvey. He's the Managing Artistic Director of the Fine Arts Building and celebrating its 125th anniversary as an arts hub in Chicago. If you've never been, it's located at 410 South Michigan Avenue, walking distance to one of the world's greatest art museums and one of the world's greatest orchestra halls. You can learn more at FineArtsBuilding.com. And a quick reminder, if you listen to The Art Section every Sunday here on WDCB, make sure to visit the show's website over at theartsection.org. There you can find past episodes and individual features available to listen to on demand anytime you want. Say you missed something one week or want to listen to a story you heard one Sunday morning again, you can find it there plus pictures and links to go along with all the features you hear on the show. You can find it all at theartsection.org. You can also find my contact info. If you want to drop me a line with a story idea or a question, my email is at wdcb.org, or you can find me on Twitter or Instagram with the handle at <laughs>
2: Whatever
3: Lola wants, Lola gets, and little man, little Lola wants you,
0: make up your mind to have- And you are listening to The Earth Section. I'm Gary Zydek. Joining me remotely are the Dueling Critics, Cary Reed and Jonathan Abarbanel. Good morning.
4: Good morning, Good Gary. Good morning, Gary. I'm
0: a pretty big sports fan. I would do a lot to see my White Sox win, but I wouldn't sell my soul to the devil. But that's what Joe Boyd does in his desperation to see the Washington Senators win in the 1955 classic, Damn Yankees. The Tony Award-winning musical is being revived by Marriott Theatre in Lincolnshire, directed here by James Vasquez. Jonathan, you were telling me a little earlier that Damn Yankees has aged pretty well for a musical from 1955.
2: I think it's aged pretty well indeed, uh, and and I, I must say that this was my first trip out to the Marriott-Lincolnshire Theatre since before the COVID shutdown. So it's been more than three years, which has nothing to do with the musical, which is much <laughs> older than that. But I am pleased to report that Marriott still is in, is in fine settle, and uh, Damn Yankees is a good example of why. It's an enjoyable old chestnut of American musical theater, and yes, I think it's aged rather gracefully, baseball being a timeless subject. And, you know, Marriott brings it to life in a fast paced, well sung, big production with a cast of 25 on stage, plus a nine-piece orchestra. I think everyone knows the story uh, about a middle-aged guy, uh, you know, kind of like me, who makes a deal with the devil (laughs) to become a young baseball superstar and propel his hapless teams, the old Washington Senators, to a pennant victory over the Yankees. You know, it's filled with classic songs, I would say, like You Gotta Have Heart and Whatever Lola Wants, the two Lost Souls and Who's Got the Pain When You Do the Mambo. But, you know, for me, the show's real trick and the skill in the construction of the show is maintaining the loving thread between the young superstar and the middle-aged wife he abandoned when the devil made him young again. Damn Yankees really would be a pretty empty show without this. Maybe fun, but pretty empty. What do you think, Terry. I absolutely agree, you know, and I
4: think it's it's probably smart programming for Marriott. This is a, a pretty familiar show, but it's also one that, as you mentioned, Gary, would tie in for people who who love sports, whether or not they're musical fans or not. And there aren't that many shows out there. I mean, we've got Take Me Out, which by Richard Greenberg, which is a completely different kind of story. But I, I, I agree. It really is about that lovely relationship between Meg, the middle aged, you know, baseball widow who, when her husband disappears, might really be a widow for all she knows. She's been left high and dry. She has her friends, but she doesn't know where her husband is. And when this young man shows up, who a different, a different Joe, but sort of the same, it creates this kind of—I um, don't know how to describe it—but this this beautiful energy between them, and a sense of how do you live with regrets? How do you move forward? Right? When you when your dreams aren't really what you, haven't really come to fruition. And I think that in that sense, although it's about a sport for young people, this is a show I think that might be best appreciated by people with a little bit more. Uh, rubber under the road, or road under their their wheels, or whatever bad Uh, metaphor I'm using there. People who are down in the the bottom of the ninth. (laughs) A few more spikes in the dirt. A few more spikes in the dirt. We're heading into extra innings. (laughs) (laughs) I
2: I think it plays beautifully under director James Vasquez and a really strong cast. Andrew Allstatt making his uh, Marriott debut uh, as uh, Joe Hardy, and Daniela Dali... They have fine, big voices and really strong emotions as young Joe Hardy and Meg, who is the wife that Joe left behind when he becomes young again. And I also want to call out Ron E. Raines, a great Marriott veteran of several decades, who does his part as the older Joe, the guy who sells his soul, and also Sean Fortunato as Mr. Applegate, a.k.a. The Devil, who offers, frankly, the best interpretation of this role that I've ever seen. Uh, and I've seen a few over the years. Yeah. Uh, the supporting players are all fine as well, if not exactly subtle. I would not say this is a subtle joke. Right.
4: Right. I absolutely agree with Sean Fortunato. I've seen a few productions too. And, you know, it's a difficult thing playing the devil because if you're too, you know, <laughs> overtly evil, then people will run screaming in the other direction once they figure out your game. And he also has to be someone who is very uh, malleable. He plays, you know, assumes many different
2: kinds of personas to help Joe out. Uh, You might say, the devil is in the details?
4: (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Um, That's absolutely true. But, I mean, it's sort of like he's playing several different roles, and um, Fortunato is just such a Very limber physically as well as in terms of his performance style. He moves between all of these roles, very, you know, all these different, you know, costumes that he's trying on and all these different machinations that he's playing out um, with great verve. And he's really enjoyable to watch, but in a way that does not detract, as you've already said, Jonathan, from what really is the core relationship, which is the Joe and Meg relationship. Joe in both his, you know, older and his, you know, young slugger form. and and Meg, who is sort of the the, the rock. Um, I also thought the choreography was pretty terrific. Uh, What were your thoughts on that, Jonathan? I thought they they found some very
2: inventive ways to move around that locker room. (laughs) That was the next thing I was going to say, that Tyler Haynes has provided exuberance, and athletic choreography, with a particularly electric solo spot for one of the ball players, and a jump rope. I can't ID the actor, but his uniform was number twenty-five. <laughs> to see the show. Yeah.
4: And I also thought that um, Lola, as played by Michelle Aravina, is, you know, also has sort of a wistful quality to her. Lola, of course, has to have plenty of va-va-voom because whatever Lola wants, Lola gets but when lola's not getting her way with joe sorry spoiler alert we have to see that there's this there's still a human side to this woman even though she's you know been in the clutches of mr applegate and his and his you know unholy deals for some time and i really don't think i've seen a lola that quite made me believe in that you know more humane and compassionate side as well as I have in this
2: production yeah she has to be sexy but she can't be nothing but sex so right she, she can't be, be
4: heartless yeah. she cannot just be you know a, 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 a you know she's not a sh- her name is Lola she is a showgirl but <laughs> she is the- <laughs> We're on a roll today. But there's more to her than that. Oh, yes. I don't know. Did we all take pun pills or <laughs> just <silly laughs> joke pills? I don't know. Maybe they slipped us something at Marriott that, that's still lingering. Who knows?
2: Yeah. <laughs> I, I wanted to also mention the costume designs by Teresa Hamm. You already mentioned how much fun she has with the various shades of red, the different outfits for Mr. Applegate, including one that is complete with a double's tail. But everything is just right, especially those baggy 1950s-style baseball uniforms, which you don't see anymore, except if you're doing, you know, historically accurate productions of the damn Yankees or looking at all the old photos, you know, from the 40s or the 50s. Uh, the lighting and sound and scenic designs, I think, all are pluses, too. And the orchestra, which is always strong out at the Marriott, and it's really sensational under conductor Noah Landis with especially good work from the woodwinds and the lead trumpet. Um, you know, there's not a blessed thing not to like in this damn right? Movie. I absolutely agree. And there's, I mean, it's,
4: it's a show that I think held up well, because it's not necessarily of its timing. I mean, obviously it, it is set, and the visuals very much tell us that we are in the 1950s. But there's there's one small political joke that was, you know, that, that's in the <laughs> text. But otherwise, in the it's text, really... a yes. Yes, it's about, it's about longing, you know, whether it's longing for the romance in your marriage to come back, whether it's longing to finally be that, you know, baseball hero you always thought you might be, or to at least see your heroes ascend to the, you know, to the glorious, you know, heavens of winning the pennant. And these are all things that are, I think are very timeless, and I think that's one thing this show understands. It doesn't feel creaky in any way, and I think there's just, as you mentioned, Jonathan, the choreography athleticism, youthful exuberance, um, and I honestly, it moved, it moved so well that when they all came out for the curtain call, I forgot just how very many actors are moving yeah. off and on that, yeah. that, that stage in the round. It's quite an, quite an achievement, and I, I was pretty much delighted from start to finish.
2: Well, they have a full, among other things, you know, a full nine-member baseball team, plus Joe. So they actually have right. ten baseball players in uniform, Plus the manager, and and then they have all the other characters as well, uh, and, and we should say that this is a show you can bring the kids to as well. Right,
4: right, yeah. There's there's nothing objectionable in it, and there's just lots of funny little bits. There's one point where early on, where the uh, the coach of the Senators is kind of trying to remind them of what the signals mean, and it's just this absolutely hilarious pantomime of these. Signals that get more and more ridiculous, as he's, and as he's getting more and more exasperated, that why can't you remember this? As he goes through some really complex, you know, yeah, physical yeah. dance to tell them what they're supposed to be doing on the field.
2: You know, we should point out that uh, well, you, Kerry and Gary, you're probably not old enough to remember that the you know the baseball team in Washington now, the Washington Nationals, uh, is a very good competitive team, but the. Older team, the Washington Senators, and that's what they were called, was a per- like the Cubs. They were perpetual losers, and uh, it led to a, a famous witticism all through the forties and all through the fifties and all through the sixties about Washington D.C. First in war, first in peace, last in the American League. <laughs> <laughs> so that's what this show is about, uh, Gary. I wanted to also note a couple of things. Uh, about the Marriott operation that benefits theater goers. First, the parking closest to the theater entrance is now reserved for theater goers only, which it didn't used to be, and that's a big plus. Also, the concessions, the candy, the soft drinks, the booze, are very reasonably priced compared to the down stop, to the downtown theaters. Uh, I picked up a soft drink, uh, a can of. Pepsi and a candy bar, and it was only 4 bucks, and that's a that's a reasonable price. So those are pluses. Um, and I also wanted to mention that the Marriott Theater is now headed by two veterans of the Bohemian Theater Ensemble, the Boho Theater, which is an innovative off-loop troupe, Carrie, that you and I have reviewed several Absolutely. times. And now they're former executive and artistic directors. Are running the Marriott. They've kept the standards high, to be sure, as you and I have noted. But I kind of wish they were a little more adventurous in their show choices, their programming. They're not as adventurous as they were when they were at Boho.
0: <laughs> I miss
2: the occasional world premiere musical, right. which Marriott used to do, and I hope maybe in uh, future seasons they will get back to that.
4: Yeah, I agree, and I know it's been a t- it's been a tough road with with world premieres lately. I think Paramount had opened the world premiere of The Secret of My Success, and uh, right before the shutdown, you know, the musical based on the, the Michael uh, uh, J. Fox film. Yeah, I, so, I, and I understand people want to kind of solidify their audiences, welcome them back, and this is obviously a great show for doing that, but I would agree with you, Jonathan, given the, especially the pedigree of what Boho had done in the past. So I do hope that, um, you know, that they'll, they'll take some ventures, you know, a little outside the usual canon
2: from time to time. Well, I hope they listen to us
4: doesn't everyone (laughs) maybe we can make them maybe we should make them an offer they can't resist (laughs) yeah yeah.
0: Marriott theaters, Damn Yankees continues through June 4th Gary, Jonathan, thanks so much oh
4: you're You're welcome welcome, Gary
0: I'm Gary Zydek you're listening to The Arts Section The Chicago Symphony Orchestra's contemporary music series, Music Now, will conclude its 22-23 season, April 24th, with a special program titled, In Context. The series is curated by the CSO's Mead composer-in-residence, Jesse Montgomery. The in-demand composer is in the second of a three-year appointment. When I caught up with her last spring, she was living in New York and traveling to Chicago for certain events. At the time, she mentioned an interest in moving to Chicago at some point. When I caught up with Montgomery last week at Symphony Center to talk about *In Context*, she was officially living in Chicago.
5: That has since happened happily, and uh, yeah, I moved in September, so it's been great. I've been loving it. It's, it's it's been fulfilling all of my wishes, yeah. which was uh, to slow down from living in New York and but still be in a like really vibrant city and sort of reconnect with colleagues who I who had like sort of made Chicago their home you know people I haven't seen in you know 10-15 years and stuff like that so reconnecting with you know a different kind of stream of friends and colleagues and stuff so it's been great
0: is there like a day-to-day difference in the way of life for you
5: yeah definitely I think they're a little slower for me here because um you kind of you have to plan ahead you have to stock up your apartment (laughs) you know you can't just like run down to the grocery store every day for whatever you need so you kind of have to like Slightly milder pace than, than living in New York, which has been good. Yeah, it's been good for my writing, and I have a nice studio set up in my apartment now that's suitable. Yeah.
0: Most years, each Music Now concert revolves around a theme. Montgomery programmed the entire season around a broader theme of mentorship. And for this final concert of the series, in context, Montgomery turned inward and looked at her own influences.
5: This year, I had like an overarching theme of the ways in which composers um, influence and mentor one another. Sort of like how that torch is sort of passed on from generation to generation. And so we had some really great concerts this year. We had Alvin Singleton and Carlos Simon on a concert earlier in the year. Um, We had a great concert with um, Mark O'Connor violinist and composer and Xavier Foley who Xavier has a strong interest in uh, roots music and folk music American folk music and so Mark was always someone that he sort of looked up to in that in that regard so uh, it was great to have them on a, on a concert together like jamming sure. together you know and it's really about sort of the connections between composers and influences and this concert that's coming up this on April 24th is a concert that is sort of organically, I think because I had come up with this concept, organically turned into like a Jesse Montgomery review. (laughs) kind of. Um, And so because I started out thinking about my the first sort of mentor who showed me a little bit of the ropes about like how to be a composer when I came back to New York from like after I'd left New York for a little while and then I was teaching and everything and I moved back after some time. And that was when I started attempting to become a serious composer, and Richard Einhorn, um, who is one of the featured composers, sort of took me under his wing for a little while and sort of helped me understand a little bit of how commissioning works and some of the nuts and bolts, and he would look at my look over my music and we would just talk about music and he was just very, very open and helpful and like urging me mm-hmm. along and I really you know and so I. And I remember his music and those interactions fondly. So Richard is on there, and then uh, I wanted to, sort of outside of the tradition of Music Now, Music Now is meant to feature composers who are living, so that we're, you know, listening to the music of today. Since this was a sort of review style, we do have composers featured that were influences on me when I was about, around in high school. And so these were Leonard Bernstein, uh, Walter Piston, and also Julia Perry, um, who I actually didn't know about when I was in high school. But that's mainly because her works had been she was a was a black American composer. And we just didn't she wasn't on our radar, you know, at that time. And I only recently in the past 10 years or so learned about her. So I included her piece on there as a sort of, you know, if I had been able to Mm -hmm. hear her music, this, the influence would have been there because her music is very sort of in line with that style in that period of the like mid 20th century kind of modern modernist style. Mm-hmm. And so yeah, that was those were all those influences. And and then to sort of tie it all together, there's a young composers initiative that I started this year where I have five young high school Chicago high school aged students um, working on compositions. For this program so we'll have one of the student compositions um on that on that concert to sort of represent that program and sort of the mentoring that's been going on this year and
0: now you're the teacher
5: and now i'm the teacher <laughs> right exactly yeah the student becomes a teacher yeah
0: <laughs> that's got to be exciting the young person's name angel Alday.
5: yeah he has been working he and he, it was his first it's his first piece that he's ever written like in this way, you know, with, like, all, all through composed, and he wrote all the parts, and uh, he was, he's a very talented kid, he, he um, plays in a lot of ensembles in the city, you know, youth and ensembles, but yeah. I think this was his first, yeah, this was his first attempt at, like, top to bottom every note he's accounted, accounted for, and um, it's really exciting to watch that process unfold, and he just did a wonderful job and was, like, very sincere in his effort, and so we're just really excited to be able to give him this opportunity.
0: The finale of the program will be a world premiere of a work composed by Montgomery, which she will also perform alongside a special guest.
5: I'm super excited about my piece. It's called Musings for Two Violins, and it's a, uh, I'm going to be performing it myself, along with Rachel Barton Pine, the lovely and amazingly Mm -hmm. talented Rachel Barton Pine. She is, has over the years become also, kind of like a, a guide and a, and a somebody to like look up to, you know, and not, of course, with her fabulous violin playing, um, but also her commitment to um, edu- to educating and researching Black American music. She has this; she's been studying this topic for like decades. She's been extremely. Um, like an extremely great resource for for me and for many young musicians over the years in that regard um, and her daughter is also a composer so oh, wow. we've had some fun you know really some nice connections there around sort of creativity and music and um and yeah and just support so she's just really fantastic that she's willing to play this duet with me. (laughs) It's sort of like a, not something I would have ever imagined as a kid, (laughs) that I would be playing a duo with Rachel Barton Pine. There's no way, but, uh, and to be doing it in this way, to share sort of like the teacher and student thing. Yeah
0: mm-hmm. I mean, I haven't kept track of every Music Now concert over the years, but I would think that this might be like a unique thing to have the actual composer and residents play.
5: Yeah, on occasion, um, composers and residents have played on the concerts. I think I might be taking advantage of it a little bit more <laughs> <No>. than others. <laughs> um, but I am enjoying it and I'm just grateful that you know to have the opportunity to, to play and to play my own music, you know I think that's helpful for the sort of transmission of it. And it's sort of like, it's super fresh, and it's like coming f- straight from the composer, so it's yeah. kind of an interesting dynamic. Um, and we're going to be doing a lot of that next year, actually, too. Um, and we'll continue, yeah, with composer performers being featured. Okay. Mm-hmm.
0: And these days, you're really focused on composing, but do you miss performing in front of people?
5: Um. I mean, I'm really looking forward to the 24th. I think I got all my scary jitters out of the way. When you don't do it for a long time, you get, um, you lose the muscle. You know, the muscle needs to be trained, you know, the performance muscle. But, you know, I spent so many years like playing and concertizing, um, that now I'm sort of in a different place. I get, it feels a little more joyful, (laughs) a little bit less stressful, even though it's an important stage, it's an important series, you want to do a good job. I just don't worry about whether I'm going to do a good job anymore. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I just, not that, you know, I could miss a note, of course, I could miss 12, 12 notes, but I, uh, you know, I'm playing more from, I'm playing from a different place now, just kind of, I'm relearning a lot of things, relearning a lot of things about my technique, and just trying to enjoy the process of, like, growing with your musicianship, and things change. Sure. So I do, I do but I maintain playing performance projects um, somewhat regularly, yeah.
0: Okay. The 25th Music Now season culminates on Monday within Context but there's no rest for someone as in demand as Montgomery. She's got a busy summer already lined up.
5: It's gonna be a big summer this summer actually. We have a an opera that is premiering that I've been working on for 7 years oh, wow. <laughs> called Tremanisha. It's a readap it's an adaptation of Scott Joplin's Tremanisha and it is premiering at the Luminato Festival in Toronto in June and actually going to have some music here at grant park festival a viola concerto that i wrote yeah and i'm going to italy for a little while for a workcation. okay yes
0: looking forward to all those things jesse thanks so much
5: yeah thank you thanks for uh, having me
0: that's jesse montgomery she's the cso's mead composer in residence She'll be performing alongside Rachel Barton Pine for the world premiere of her CSO-commissioned piece, Musings for Two Violins. The new work is part of the Music Now season finale program, In Context, which is taking place at 7 p.m. on Monday, April 24th. Go to CSO.org for more information. you're tuned into the arts section. I'm Gary Zydek. Yesterday was Independent Record Store Day, and whether you're flipping through vinyl at your favorite record store or scrolling through playlists on Spotify or Apple Music, you're likely using genres to navigate your search, the music industry as a whole. Record companies, event promoters, and radio stations have perpetuated a classification system that puts artists into specific categories. Many professional musicians openly question the term genre, preferring to believe their creative endeavors cross musical boundaries. A book by former New York Times pop music critic and current New Yorker writer Khalifa Sané offers an in-depth exploration of popular music genres. Titled Major Labels, A History of Popular Music in Seven Genres, the book includes a vigorous defense of genres. Sané writes... I'm always a bit puzzled when a musician is praised for transcending genre. What's so great about that? The idea of transcending genre suggests an inverse correlation between excellence and belonging, as if the greatest musicians were somehow less important to their musical communities rather than more. Sané dives into the past 50 years of popular music with a focus on rock, R&B, country, punk, hip-hop, dance music, and pop. I caught up with the New York-based journalist to discuss major labels. So you've made a career out of writing about music in some form or another for several years. What was the inspiration for this book, which really dives into genres?
3: Well, it's two things. One is that for me, often listening to music has meant, and writing about music has meant zooming in. You know, both, I was a pop music critic at the New York Times, and, you know, for the last 13 or so years, I've been a staff writer at the New Yorker, where I get to kind of go deep and write these deep-dive profiles of people. And this book was an effort to zoom out a little bit, to, to take a step back and say something both to obsessive music listeners and also to casual listeners that have this sense that I think a lot of people have that music used to make sense in the 60s, that something happened that we can all understand involving like the Beatles and the Vietnam War and then the things started to get kind of weird and, and fragmented and fractious and obscure starting in the 1970s that everyone you know there were all these genres and all these sub-genres and it got kind of confusing and so I wanted to tell a story about how and why that happened and to kind of make sense of it and to maybe put it in perspective and, and show people a little bit how these different forms of music fit together. I also wanted to do something slightly mischievous and maybe obnoxious, which is that um, <laughs> I think that a lot of people talk about musical genres as if they're a problem, as if there's something to be solved. We praise musicians for transcending genres, for mixing genres, for not being limited to one genre, not being just this or just that. And so I kind of wanted to speak up for genres. I wanted to defend genre. I think genre is just a a fancy French word for a musical community, right? A community of listeners and musicians. And I wanted to speak up for that way of thinking about music, of thinking about country music as a community and as a tradition. Now, a lot of the people in this tradition are fighting over what it means, but that's part of the way you know they're in that tradition, right? Often part of what it means to be in a tradition is that you care about it enough to want to fight over it. So my book is a history of popular music since the 1960s, but it's told through these seven genres, rock and roll, R&B, country music, punk rock, hip-hop, dance music, and pop. And, and my argument is that these genres are all, all work in different ways. They're all really important, and they've helped define the way music works and the way we hear music. And that if you're a reader, chances are you don't know everything there is to know about all these genres. And, and chances are that learning about some of these kinds of music, even if it's not something that you end up listening to, even if I don't convert you into a fan of slow jams or a fan of death metal or a fan of techno or whatever... It'll help you understand how music works and how it all fits together if you can see music a little bit through the eyes of someone who does love that kind of music.
0: The book is part memoir as you incorporate your own experiences with music growing up and then as a a professional When did you start thinking about genres and and individual music communities and what that represented? Personally, when did you start thinking about those things?
3: It's funny, that that, that sounds like a question with a vague answer, but in fact it's a question with a very specific answer. The answer is on my 14th birthday, um, because that's when uh, my best friend gave me a mixtape of punk rock. He was into some punk rock bands, he was trying to convert me, and boy did he ever, I think after within a week or two of getting that mixtape I had declared my allegiance to punk, I was like this is what I'm into All that other stuff that's not punk, I'm not interested in it it anymore. I remember remember a, a case of cassettes with, like, Rolling Stones and stuff in it. I remember, like, shoving it aside and thinking, I am never going to listen to the Rolling Stones again. Like, it's over. And so, for me, that was not, of course, the end of my relationship with the Rolling Stones, but it was the beginning of a lifelong journey as I spent the next decade's thinking about what music I loved and why, right? For me, punk rock represented that spirit of defiance, of rebellion, of difference, right? Of I'm gonna like something different. And so loving punk in a paradoxical way that pushed me out of punk. I was listening to the Sex Pistols and all these punk bands and then I started thinking like, well, what would it mean to break the rules of punk rock if punk rock is about breaking the rules, right? What would it mean to be different from this? And eventually found my way to hip hop and dance music and, and R&B. I learned to hear that, that spirit of strangeness in pop music and learned to appreciate the world of pop music, this world where everyone is just like doing whatever they can do to make a hit. I learned to love the, the craft and the songwriting and the musicianship of country music. And so loving punk rock in a complicated way helped me love all of these other very un-punk forms of music as well.
0: It's interesting to think about how people develop their, their tastes. So you just described your musical journey of how you went to different places. Do you think that's unique uh, or common among people about how they discover the, the types of music they like?
3: I mean, I think there are a lot of people for whom something like that was a formative experience, right? Even if it's not punk, a lot of us had an experience at some point in our life when we start thinking about who we are. And often when you're a teenager, the way you do that is by thinking about who you're not, right? Um, it's a way, you know, you say, it's the, it's saying that you're not like everybody else can be a step on the way to realizing that you're not like anybody else. And, you know, you don't need Johnny Rotten screaming in your face in order to do that. I needed that. Most people (laughs) maybe don't. But I think music is a really powerful force for figuring out and determining who you are. Because music is so split up, because it's so divisive, it's a really useful Tool for anyone looking for ways to think about that, to think about, I'm this kind of person, I'm not that kind of person. There are so many different types of music that it's possible to find a kind of music that gives you that feeling, that feels unique, that feels like this isn't what everyone's listening to, this is just what I'm listening to. And of course, sometimes that's an illusion, right? Sometimes that could be the most popular song in the country. Because of the way we hear music, because it gets like through our ears, like directly into our brains, because we tend to listen to music over and over and over again in a way that we don't necessarily read a book over and over again. Oftentimes we often don't even see a movie as many times as we listen to a song. It gets kind of instilled deep in your brain, and so the relationship to music can feel very, very personal, right? When most of us think of our favorite songs, our favorite acts, it feels like someone or something we have a personal relationship with, with, even as at the same time it feels social because we know there are all these other people out there listening too. And I often find, I, I don't know about you, I often find when I'm listening to music, often I find myself thinking about all the other people who like this or who don't like this or why, which means that even when I'm alone in my apartment, listening to music feels like a social experience for me.
0: Sure. And you write about it briefly in the uh, introduction, but how did you decide on the, the seven genres you wanted to, to focus on? Did rock, R&B, country, punk, hip-hop, dance, and, and pop, do they really set themselves apart in your mind?
3: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's tricky, right? You could zoom way in, right? And you could have all these, you could have sub-sub-genres, right? And have a whole chapter on melodic death metal and another chapter on technical death metal and progressive death metal and blackened death metal. I mean, you can parse music as finely as you want, right? For someone else, popular music music itself might seem like a genre as opposed to opera or as opposed to jazz or something else. But for me, I was partly motivated, I got to admit, by the fact that I wanted to tell stories. I wanted the stories to be fun and interesting and unexpected. I wanted them to overlap. So I was looking for seven, I was looking for these overlapping communities that would say something about popular music, that interacted with the pop charts, that was were tours with, that were selling tickets. So, you know, I, I, I didn't write a whole chapter on bluegrass or or on gospel, which kind of existed in its own world. I wanted genres that, that had some crossover to them. And that's, that's kind of how I settled on rock, R&B, country, punk, hip hop, dance music, and pop music. My, my idea was that anyone who likes popular music knows something about some of those genres, and very few people certainly not me knows everything about all of them so my hope was that people can pick up this book and maybe get a new perspective on some artists or songs that they like and maybe learn about some music that they don't listen to and would never consider listening to they can still enjoy learning something about how people in that world in that community think about music and think about life
0: If you're just tuning in this is the art Section. My name is Gary Zydek. I'm talking with music journalist and author Khalifa Sane about his book, Major Labels, A History of Popular Music in Seven Genres. So I'm uh, obviously working radio, but I'm also a, a big radio nerd. Always interested in listening to radio stations all over to, to find out what they're doing. And you touch on radio in the book. You write a little bit about your own experience working for your college radio station at Harvard. And then throughout the book, you know, radio stations pop up. So this is kind of a, a big question, but wanted to get your thoughts on the role radio has played over the past 50 years in maintaining some of these genre camps.
3: Yeah, I mean, one way to think about a musical genre is that it's a record industry plot to sell you more records. Right and radio stations and, and labels use them as marketing. Radio stations have formats which are often based on genres, and those are really important to call together listeners. We're your number one station for country <laughs> hits, for for hip hop and R and B. Right, that's a way to call together listeners. Record stores even, you know, would have different sections to help shoppers find what they were looking for. Um, so. Genres are partly a music industry plot, and the question to me is that why this plot, unlike many others, succeeded. Why do people like thinking of themselves in terms of genre? Why, and because that's why radio stations use formats, is because it works. Because it is true that someone who hears this R&B record might like hearing this other one and this other one. It is true that there is a whole community of people that love country music and, and what that means. And, and, and you know... Radio stations, as you know, can be very scientific sometimes, or pseudo-scientific, right? They do research, and they figure out which songs test well. What do people really want? So... In that sense, yes, radio stations and other parts of the music industry have played a role in maintaining these genres, and it kind of remains to be seen what that will look like in the streaming era. If, anyone's, if everyone's getting their music online from, from Spotify or Apple Music or other places like that, where you're listening on demand, where, where you're often you're listening to playlists that might be organized by mood and not by genre, right? You might be just listening to music to chill out to, music to work to, music to go running to. That, that might be a different way of listening to music. But my suspicion is that as long as music plays a role in shaping our identities, we are going to look to form musical communities. And wherever I see people forming musical communities, I see a genre. And sometimes that can be a new genre, right? In the, in the 1970s, when Billboard notices that there are these R&B records that aren't really getting played on R&B radio stations, but they do seem to be popular and they do seem to be resonating with a different audience, that's where the Billboard disco chart was born, which lives on today as as various dance music charts, right? And so anytime, I kind of usually start often with audiences as much as I start with musicians. And anytime there's a new group of listeners that are gravitating towards something – that, to me, is a new genre or a new potential genre. And I think, you know, I think it's a very human and perhaps very American tendency that we have to organize ourselves into groups, into tribes. And, and inevitably, when that happens, as humans, this is what we do, and these tribes are inevitably defined by inclusion and exclusion, right? Any, any category, any group is defined partly by what it leaves out. And so I think that it makes sense that that's how music has been organized, and I suspect that music will continue to be organized that way, even if the genres themselves change in this new era.
0: And unique compared to maybe other popular forms of of media, whereas if there's a, a motion picture that everyone seems to like, I guess people don't think of that in terms of like, well, I don't go see dramas, I only go see action films.
3: Yeah, and you you don't think of a high school as having tribes of different people who like different kinds of movies, right? You have some of that, but it's usually, it's not so, it's not generally quite as definitive as music is. And, you know, I think there's a lot of reason for that. I think one of them is that the expectation with films often is that you kind of stop your life to watch a movie, right? You go into a dark room, or maybe you turn your own lights down in your house, and you maybe get mainly offline for a couple hours, and you pay attention to this thing, right? Whereas music is much sneakier than that, right? Music is like this thing you hear at the supermarket in the background. It's this thing that pops up in ads. It's this thing that's around you when you're out at a bar or a club. And because it's often the soundtrack to what we're doing, rather than the main thing we're doing, it acquires all of these All of this social baggage, right? That's why even now there's a certain kind of music I could play for you that would make you picture a certain kind of person, if it's a guitar riff or something. There's a certain kind of dance music that might make you imagine this sort of party or that kind of party. A certain kind of country music. And you can summon up in your head, an image of who listens to it. And so... That connection between music and identity is part of what gives music its force and its power. And it's part of the reason why I decided to write a book not about, you know, different guitar tones, although you could certainly write a book all about different guitar tones, but I wrote a book about different groups of people and people arguing and coming together and doing the things that people do and using music to do these things that, that, that people always do and people love to do.
0: I rarely do this, but I brought my little reporter's notebook as I'm reading this just because I'm writing down stuff, albums and artists that you've referenced just so I can go back in and look further into them. It's uh...
3: Excellent. I want, I want to send people right down the rabbit hole. Right,
0: exactly. I appreciate you making some time to, to talk with me.
3: Thanks, I appreciate it. This has been so much fun. <laughs>
0: That was journalist Khalifa Sané. He's the author of the book Major Labels, A History of Popular Music in Seven Genres. It's available everywhere books are sold. And that's going to wrap up this edition of the arts section. But remember, you can always find more arts and culture online by visiting the program's website over at the artssection.org there you can find past episodes and individual features available to listen to on demand anytime you want plus pictures and links to go along with all the features you hear on the show my name is Gary Zydek, I hope you'll join me again next Sunday morning at 8am right here on 90.9 and 90.7 FM for another edition of the Arts Section until then, I hope you have a great week, thanks for listening
5: I just grinning like a clown it's my
0: My kind of a but test. Whoa, and it has all
2: that jazz, and each time I leave Chicago, it's
0: tugging, tugging my sleeve.